We heard in the children's talk about God's promises and his plan. We heard in the psalm at the very beginning of the service that Jesus is king. But believing those things can be difficult. It's difficult to believe God's promises and to believe that Jesus is king when Christians are a small, despised minority, not usually the top people. It's difficult to believe God's promises and believe Jesus is king when the church looks a mess, so divided, so much disagreement, so many strange things going on. It's difficult to believe Jesus is king when we're aware that he said he's the king who'll come back. But that was in the dim and distant past 2,000 years ago, and he still hasn't returned. It's difficult believing God's promises and believing Jesus is king. Let's be honest about that. Uh, Let's not pretend otherwise because we're here at church. And let's get help. Let's get help from Matthew chapter 1. Would you turn again to that list of names which Margaret bravely read for us? In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Like so much in the Bible, this chapter is all description. It doesn't at any point tell us to do anything. Because the aim is to persuade you Jesus is the promised king, God's promised king. And then once you're persuaded, which Matthew will take his whole book over, once you're persuaded, Matthew will tell you what to do. He takes his whole book to try to persuade you Jesus is God's promised king. And then once he's done that, he ends the book with the very last couple of verses by telling you what to do about it. Be a disciple, that is someone who follows Jesus, who obeys everything he has commanded. But Matthew knows it's not easy. It's not easy to follow Jesus and obey him. It's not always easy to believe he's the king, so he first spends a lot of time trying to persuade us. Let's see the case that Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 makes for Jesus being God's promised king. Here's the first thing, and Sam's already told us in his children's talk this one. God is working out his plans and his promises. These verses are telling you that God is working out his plans and his promises. Now, children, when the Queen dies, who's going to be monarch of the UK? Who is going to be king or queen of the United Kingdom when our Queen dies? Do you know? Do you want to say? You're going to be brave, Samuel? Who is it? Do you know? You don't know. Who is it, Callum? Charles, that's right, Charles. Why is it Charles? Are we going to get a vote? Has he been voted for? Has he won a talent competition? Has he shown his great ability? Maybe there was a panel of people who interviewed various ones and picked out Charles as the, as the best candidate. No, it's going to be simply because of whose son he is. Whose son he is. He inherits the crown because of the family he's in. Now, Matthew 1 seems a strange way to begin a book, and we don't usually in church read lists like Matthew chapter 1. Why does Matthew begin like this? Matthew's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each of them is all about who Jesus is, and each of them has a particular emphasis. 
And Matthew's emphasis is Jesus is king. And so Matthew starts his book by showing Jesus should be king. He's from the right family. He descends from the king. He's a son of the king. He inherits the crown because he inherits the promises. And verse one tells you what it's all about. Verse one sets the scene for the book. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's all about showing Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Let's take Abraham first as he came first. God had promised to this man, Abraham, who lived thousands of years before, that someone would come from him. Someone would be his descendant who would be great and have the greatest name ever. He would bring blessing to all the different ethnic groups of the world. People Abraham had never heard of who lived all across the world would receive blessing through a son of Abraham. Well, you follow Abraham's family tree. That is verses two to six is his family tree. It misses out quite a few generations, but it's tracing Abraham down to David. Verse six, you get to David. David was king of Israel and God made promises to David also. A son would come from him who would be king, a far greater king than David. He would rule not just Israel, but across the nations of the world. He would rule not just for a few decades, but forever. That's what this family tree is all about. It's tracing God's promises working out until we get to Jesus. And this that means this family tree is also a summary of all the history that had happened up to Jesus. Now, if you were writing a summary of history, all of history up to Jesus, what would you be putting in it? Maybe the dinosaurs going extinct. That'll be interesting. Maybe the building of the pyramids. That's pretty spectacular. Maybe the splendor of ancient Babylon. That was pretty important. Maybe the rise of the Roman Empire has shaped the world. Well, Matthew chapter one is saying all of history up to that point can be summarized as God working out his plans and keeping his promises. He promised a king who would be the son of Abraham and the son of David, and he made it happen. There's the first thing that Matthew one's telling us. His second through humans. Through humans, Matthew 1 is summarising history. And it's saying it's all God's plan to prepare for his promised king. It's all God at work. But what is verses 2 to 16? How would you describe what verses 2 to 16 is? It's a list of humans. And they're all doing a very ordinary human thing. Well, an amazing human thing, but we're used to it. It's very ordinary, having children. It's humans having children, doing something very ordinary. There's a simple lesson here. God is in control, working out his plans, but he does it using humans. Very simple lesson. God is at work. He works out his plans. 
He keeps his promises, but he does it using humans. Very simple to state, but actually it's not so simple when you try to figure it out, because we can't figure out how it works. Behind this list of names is a whole load of choices and a whole load of actions, human decisions being made. And behind those is God's plan. Let's take one example. Verse five. Verse five. Let's, we're just picking one example here. Verse, verse five tells us Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Behind that, there's a lot of human actions. Behind that, there's a family who went off to escape from famine and most of the family died out. And they brought back to Israel a young woman called Ruth. And Ruth met up with this man called Boaz. And Boaz didn't find a magical force propelling him into marrying Ruth. No, he saw her and he fell in love with her and she loved him. They desired each other and a decision was made and they took action and they got married and they had a child. It's all very human, human decisions, human actions, human desires. And God was in control through it all, working out his plan, keeping his promises, preparing for his king. Some people have said it's a bit like this. Imagine you hold a sheet of paper, an A4 sheet of paper, and on it there's an ant. And the ant moves whichever way it chooses, but you move the paper to make sure it goes the way you want. Think of the person holding the paper being a bit like God and and the ant being a bit like us humans. We make our choices, we make our decisions, but God is in control, moving the history of this world, whichever way he wants. Now, there's all sorts of problems with that with that illustration. It's far from perfect. I'm sure you could think up problems with it. Uh, because I think it's actually beyond illustration and parallel, the way that God has made humans who make real choices and yet manage to fulfill his plans. But the paper and the ant, it does show something helpful. Humans make real choices and decisions, but God makes decisions at a completely different level. And his plan is never thwarted. His purposes never fail. God is at work through humans. That's what Matthew 1 is showing us. Let's bring it up to date. Let's think about us. Look at the church. Us. Look at Christian activity. It's so human. It's people persuading other people to believe their religious book. It's couples having children and teaching them about the Lord Jesus. It's someone at a workplace trying to be a good example to work colleagues. And someone might say, where's God in all that? It's all just human activity. If God is real, why doesn't he do something dramatic? Something beyond the human? Well, Matthew 1 says this is the way God works. He works out his plans and his promises, not usually through direct intervention, but using humans. And I reckon if you think about it, it makes sense. 
It makes sense that the creator who made this physical world with its regular processes and placed humans here who clearly are so significant to the planet, since that's the way he set things up at the start, isn't that the way you'd expect him to work? Isn't that likely to be the way he fulfills his plans for history? Third thing from Matthew 1. In unexpected ways, God is working out his plans and promises through humans. Thirdly, in unexpected ways. Let's see that by two things about this family tree. The first is the structure. In your Bible, is it split into three parts? It is in mine, three sections. And those three sections are worth taking notice of. The first one leads to David. Verses 2 to 6 is all leading up to David. It takes a long time, but it gets to a king. That's good. That sounds like it's on track. But as soon as it gets to that king, the second part is all downhill. This is verses 6 to 11. The second part is the kings after David, and with a few exceptions, they are all bad. They were terrible kings. And with a few exceptions, they're getting worse and worse and it's going downhill. Until the whole nation is so bad, it's carried off captive into Babylon, verse 11. And then the third part, verses 12 to 16. Now, what do you know about the third part? Have a look at some of the names. Azor, Eliot, Matan. What do you know about them? Well, unless you've got some special knowledge I'm not aware of, the answer is nothing. Don't know anything about them, do you? Because they're totally obscure. The house of David has declined into total obscurity. Let's take an example from our history. There used to be kings of England called the House of Stuart. Children at school, do you do about Tudors and Stuarts? No, Jonathan's shaking his head. He doesn't do about it. Well, I'll tell you about them. The House of Stuart was James I and Charles I and Charles II and James II. And then they got booted out. Bit debatable about whether it should happen. But the king got booted out. And the House of Stuart became no longer royal. Yes, rather posh, but no longer royal. Not a royal family. The house declined. Now, they're still around today. There are still people of the House of Stuart around today. One is called the 8th Earl Castle Stuart. Another is the Duke of Bavaria. Well, that tells you they're still pretty posh, but they're not royal, and you've probably not heard of them. They're no longer famous. But they are pretty grand. They live in castles. Well, the House of David, look at the House of David in verse 12 to 16. That has declined into people who are not famous. But neither are they posh and they're not living in castles. The house of David has declined into being what in verse 16? A carpenter who lives in a mud house in a little village called Nazareth. And his name is Joseph and he's totally obscure. God works in unexpected ways through bad kings through obscure people, through poor carpenters in little villages. Let's see God working in unexpected ways in another feature of this family tree. 
And that is the women in it. Did you notice the women in the family tree? Back then, women didn't usually get mentioned in family trees, but in this one, there are five. And all five have got skeletons in the cupboards. Children, have you heard the phrase having a skeleton in the cupboard? It doesn't mean they really did have a skeleton hanging in their wardrobe. It means there was something about them that was seen as bad, as something to keep secret because people would look down on you for it. People would certainly think God wouldn't work through them. Uh, let, let me just show you a couple of examples. Verse 3, Tamar. Tamar. I'm not going to go through her story. It's really horrible. But I'll just tell you, Judah was her father-in-law as well as the father of her children. That means there was incest there. Judah and Tamar have a shocking story. But it's part of the family tree of Jesus. Or what about verse five? Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, she was a Canaanite and the Canaanites were the enemies of Israel. And not only was she a Canaanite, but before she turned to God, she was a prostitute. How could God use people like that in his plan? How could God the son come through people like that? Well, that's missing the point. Because we should say, how could God the Son come through humans at all? Let's imagine if we made a measure of goodness on this wall. And God is at the top, up there where where the wall meets the roof. And down the bottom by the skirting board here are Tamar and Rahab and the men who abused them, more to the point, and the wicked kings of Israel. Now, where are you on the scale? If the, if the really bad ones are down by the skirting board and God is up by the roof, where are you? About the top of the door? No? Bottom of the window? By this banister? Well, the answer is, if we are above them at all, if we're above them at all, we're about one millimetre above them. In other words, the big gap isn't between us and the wicked kings and the disreputable women. The big gap is between all of us humans and God. The amazing thing isn't so much that he used people like that. It's that he used people at all when we know what we're like. But God works in unexpected ways, including through people with all sorts of faults and failures and even sins and skeletons in the cupboards. We've got to remember that for ourselves. I make up a person, Evie. Evie looks at the news and she sees COVID and yet another wave of COVID and lockdowns and yet another lockdown in various parts of the world and governments not knowing what to do and economies taking a hit and businesses collapsing. What a mess. Where's it going to end? And she thinks, what a mess the world is in. Where is God? He can't really be at work, can he? And she goes to church and she finds a mess in the church. She finds different competing groups within the church, believing different things, competing with each other for influence. What a mess. She says, God can't be here. Where is God? And she looks inside herself. And if she's honest, she finds a mess there. She keeps falling for sin and keeps falling for sin. What a mess. Where is God? But none of those things 
are different from the family tree of Jesus. It was a mess in individuals and a mess in the church, God's people, and a mess in the world. But God was still at work making his plan happen in unexpected ways. Fourth thing from Matthew chapter one, taking a long time. God is working out his plans and promises through humans in unexpected ways, taking a long time. God made a promise to Abraham. When? You take a guess at when? Do you know what year that would have been? Roughly? Roughly 2100 BC. That means it took 2100 years for the promise to happen. And then God made a promise to David. Do you know roughly when? Very roughly, about a thousand BC. That means it took a thousand years, roughly, for God's promise to happen. Now, as you read in the Bible about the first Christians, you find they were motivated by this. This was their big motive. Jesus is king and he's going to come back. Oh, you say, it was all very well believing that back then. But look, it's 2000 years later and he still hasn't come back. Can we really believe it? Matthew 1 is saying to you, God is at work. His plan is happening, even though he takes a long time. Last thing from Matthew chapter one, last one. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I'm trying to persuade you to believe God's promises. I'm trying to persuade you that God is in control and he's working out his plan, despite all the things that make that hard to believe. But it's not an abstract, vague idea about God's plan. Matthew 1 is all pointing to Jesus. Now, of course, the family tree is all heading to Jesus. We all know that because we heard it read. But it's also pointing to Jesus in another way. It's pointing to Jesus by saying he's the sort of king that fits this family tree. He's the sort of king who fits God's way of working. What have I been trying to tell you? God is at work through humans in unexpected ways and he takes a long time. Well, that's Jesus. He's God come to work in this world. God come as a human. God taken on a body and become a human and not the sort of human you might expect. He looks so ordinary and poor, an obscure carpenter in a village called Nazareth. He looked a disgrace as he mixed with the worst sort of people in society. And people looked down on him and said, he can't be anyone good. And he looked a mess as he hung on a cross battered and bleeding. And even his disciples looked and said, we've got it all wrong. He can't be the king. Where is God? And the answer is, there is God. Hanging on the cross, dying to save people he loved. Matthew 1 says, it may be difficult to believe God's at work and Jesus is king, but actually it makes sense. It fits Jesus fits with how God works in the world. Matthew 1 is part of the evidence to persuade you Jesus is king. Are you persuaded? 
Are you persuaded that Jesus is king? If you're not, keep reading through Matthew. There's a lot more evidence. I've only told you a tiny bit. There's a lot more. Keep reading through Matthew. Come and ask me your questions about Jesus. I'd love to hear them. If you're not persuaded, have an open mind to getting persuaded. Jesus is king. If you are persuaded, on the other end of Matthew tells you what to do. We've just looked at chapter one, but the last chapter, the last verses of Matthew tell you what to do. If you're persuaded he's king, be his disciple who trusts him enough to obey everything he commanded. Let's pray for God's help to do that. Lord God, we thank you that you treat us reasonably and you give us evidence and you show us why we should believe Jesus is king. Please may we be fully persuaded, including when life confuses us and the world confuses us and even what we see in our own lives confuses us. But may we be persuaded enough to keep following Jesus, obeying everything he's commanded. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.